welcome to Ruining Your Childhood. This is Sarah. I'm Kirsten. And today we are in part two of our four-part series on Star Wars. And so last week we talked about the original three Star Wars movies, episodes four, five, and six. And this week we're talking about the prequels, uh, episodes one, two, and three. Woohoo! Yeah. So what are what are you what's your experience with the prequels? Um, I loved the prequels when they came out because I was a small child and so they seemed uh, really great to me as a kid but um as an adult I've uh, I have a different sort of view of them uh I did proudly rock a Jar Jar Binks t-shirt for a while so um that can't be undone but uh, <laughs> uh I I sort of when I was looking I think when I looked at the prequels sort of uncritically as a child and sort of uncritical of the story itself, I really liked them just because of the special effects and the, uh, the fact that it was space and star Wars. So I loved them then. And then now when I watch them, uh, I have a little bit of a harder time. Yeah. Don't we all? Um, <laughs> uh, so I actually got into star Wars when I was in high school so I, you know, I might have seen stuff here and there with it when I was younger, but I didn't actually like watch them all until I was a teenager. And so I wasn't seeing them in theaters as they were coming, as the prequels were coming out, even though I was very much alive. Um, although the first one, I was a toddler, so I, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have gotten much out of it anyway. But I do remember in fourth grade when the third one came out, uh, everyone in my class was wearing Star Wars t-shirts and they were really excited about it. So kids were into it, which, you know, it was kind of the target audience of these, much to uh, fanboys' dismay. And I do remember seeing these with my class on a field trip. Uh, really? Specifically Clone Wars. We saw Clone Wars as a class. That's cool. So yeah, these I feel like these were really well received by children as a child who loved it i can say that it worked yeah so just before we get into it i'm going to give a brief description of all the prequel movies in in one go i don't know that i'm going to get too much into the minutia of each individual movie because they they're kind of clunky and a lot and so i'm going to give you just the the hot fr- like quick rundown and we'll go from there quick and dirty quick and dirty <laughs> Yep, and this is from uh, Wikipedia, which is the, you know, every fandom has their, like... <laughs> That's yeah, genius. Wikipedia. Uh. Um, and I kind of uh, summarized it, I condensed it a bit. The prequel trilogy is the second installment of films in the Star Wars saga. They were released from 1999 to 2005. This trilogy depicts what took place from 32 to 19 years prior to the events of Episode Four: A New Hope. It primarily focuses on young Darth Vader, then Jedi Anakin Skywalker, and an accompanying Obi-Wan Kenobi and the story of how they went from being friends to enemies. Also covered is Anakin's descent into the dark side, as well as the origin of how the Galactic Republic became the Galactic Empire. It features familiar faces such as C-3PO, R2-D2, Yoda, and a young Senator Sheev Palpatine, with the story of how he became the Emperor. It was the last trilogy distributed by 20th Century Fox as opposed to Disney. So picture it. <laughs> You are a teenager or adult in 1999, and you grew up a massive Star Wars fan, and the anticipation for this prequel series has been building up. And you go to the theater, and you're so excited. You have your popcorn, and you're with your best friends who also love Star Wars or something, 
and and then you see the Phantom Menace. Oh God, I bet that was like <laughs> uh, I can't even like fathom what a bummer that would have been. Because <laughs> you know, I I think there's are some redeeming qualities about the second and third one, but the Phantom Menace is rough. Especially if you're not a nine-year-old. That right. one is, like, specifically targeted at kids who are Anakin's age. <laughs> uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeesh. Yeesh. I just... Because the other two, when I was rewatching them, I was surprised. I was like, this is better than I remember, I think. And then... But with this one, I was like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but there, there is a lot going on with this trilogy, and it's debatable whether they're really that horrible or if George Lucas's vision just didn't line up with expectations people had but I'm I think what I'm gonna argue here is that it's both they're both is going on that makes sense uh I can see that um one thing that I will say about like re-watching this trilogy is I think this one is really hard to follow there's so much going on at once that I think it's really hard to keep up with. And I'm positive that when I watched these as a child, I had no idea what the hell was going on. And I just liked <laughs> the visuals. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of like the first time I, my first watch through, even as a teenager of all these movies, I didn't have a damn clue what was happening. <laughs> I, I had a tendency in high school to be really into certain franchises on a very surface level but I didn't actually quite understand the lore of it I just was like ah pew pew yeah no I think that has a lot to do with the pacing there's a lot of pacing issues in these movies that I'm gonna touch on a bit more later but it's just they're not as streamlined as they ought to be but uh what I will say about this trilogy right now is that it did establish the practices we now know for big movie franchises. Uh, I read an article from The Verge by Andrew Liptak, and it argues that this trilogy, along with the extended universe that was being explored in the 80s, is the shift from movies just being just movies to being complete universes. And it created kind of the cinematic universe of this, which, you know, is a model that's been used by uh, Marvel and Harry Potter and big franchises after that. And something that Disney frequently employs over and over again, where when they uh, buy, buy a franchise like Marvel or Star Wars, they aren't just buying the properties that already exist. They're doing it so that they can explore every possible avenue of this world and make kind of a complete universe and not just the movies. It's so fascinating to think that there was a time when that wasn't happening. Yeah. It's so the norm now. Right. We and it started, you know, uh you and I were little when these movies came out and then immediately it was Harry Potter. And mm-hmm. so every huge franchise has a built-in universe with a lot of lore a lot of like background that you can read into a lot of you know canon extras that the writers will throw in so that you can have even more things to look into if you want so uh it's so much more immersive to like something Mm -hmm. yeah and and I, i think uh in some ways it is pretty capitalistic but in other ways it does kind of feed the fan and all of us where we just you know if a kid gets into star wars nowadays they have endless content to explore with it because they have 
uh, multiple television shows, several movie series, individual movies, and in books and comics and there's just there's so much i know a a lot of people have problems with this sort of format because you know it's we get so focused on huge franchises but i really love the escapism that comes with universes that have been built up like this that you can really sink in to a different universe yeah and i i like it too i like it more with star wars than with say marvel because i think there's some i think with marvel and things like that it kind of gets a bit overwhelming because there's a lot there's just so much but with with star wars it's it's more of a handleable amount right but you know another thing that this kind of created i'm going to argue at least is Uh, This is where you start to get kind of that toxic fan base of particularly, I think, adult males are uh, the perpetrators of this, where they have a certain ownership of the franchise that they feel and they get angry when it's done wrong in their eyes. So, like, it's one thing for fanboys to argue over the minutia of a film that's been made and is done and over with. And it's another thing to tell those fanboys, okay, we're going to make a prequel that answers the questions you've had for 20 years about the origin of Anakin Skywalker. And then they get ideas in their head about that, what that might look like and what they want out of that. And then inevitably the end product doesn't match up. And Star Wars, just that kind of is exactly what happened there. Right. It's like when you've had 20 years to build on a world in your own head you're going to have expectations that aren't met mm-hmm. because even though this is George Lucas's idea people sort of took ownership over it I think even from him yeah and George Lucas has even commented before you know I don't even know why I keep making these movies because you just release something and then everyone says oh well, you did it wrong and and then certainly the actors involved get a lot of shit for it as we'll go into and so it just at some point you know you need to if you're someone who's really into something like this and you feel like someone ruined it for you you know it's just the 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 old one still exists and it can exist however you want it in your own head that's what i keep telling myself about harry potter (laughs) (laughs) oh man yeah i i feel that way too so I, I don't know. Maybe I maybe I don't have that much room to talk because I do get angry at uh, J.K. Rowling for Fantastic Beasts pretty often. But she's also a much more hateable person. Right. To be fair. <laughs> uh, now that I know how much George Lucas hated Richard Nixon, I have a lot more sympathy for him. <laughs> yeah, we, we, uh, we could support someone who is not cool with Richard Nixon. But this trilogy is obviously hated by a lot of people. Uh, but also defended by some people, including a lot of the cast and George Lucas himself. And Lucas maintains that The Phantom Menace is one of his favorite Star Wars movies in the whole franchise, like to this day. You know, I, I don't know why that's his hill to die on, but okay. <laughs> I mean, you when you create something as universally loved, you're allowed to pick whatever you want and latch on to it if you feel super proud about the phantom menace you go ahead on yeah that you know that that is okay so there are many valid critiques of the series and i'm going to break these down first before i get into stuff that's maybe like interesting good about it so i'm going to talk about a lot of the bad and then maybe i'll, I'll throw in some of the good later um if i can find it no i'm kidding I, <laughs> there, there are some good things about it i think so the main difference that i think visually that someone will notice 
when watching these movies is that there's a shift from practical effects and puppetry to CGI and and motion capture, which made it feel very different. Just aesthetically, it was quite different. And there was a lot of, you know, in the old ones, there was a lot of uh, nature and desert landscapes and woodland landscapes. But then in the prequels, it's a lot of techie city landscapes, which is... Right interesting but also not what people were used to and with the technology that was available it was hard to make those cities look like realistic cities and not like drawings yeah exactly and so george lucas really enjoys being on the cutting edge of new movie making technology and that's great and all but this stuff was really in its infancy so it didn't look as polished as you know the stuff we have today but the second thing that is very off about it like i mentioned earlier the pacing is wild it's too much time is spent on certain things and not enough time on others and there it goes into like the details and minutiae of these political debates because this is a highly political movie and that there's literally a lot of politics in the movie right and there are a lot of like complex names and terms that get thrown around it almost seems like it would be easier to watch these movies if you had like a legend of who characters are what their political beliefs are and what this term means like i think it's easy to get lost in who is who and what is what in these movies mm-hmm. and also you know the, the first movie the phantom menace is a lot about you know trade federation negotiations it's stuff that would be boring in real life but they put it in the star wars universe where you don't you don't actually know the stakes of these politics as much it's confusing as all get out and then on top of that you have probably 30 40 minutes spent on that pod race i was gonna say pod racing is another big problem <laughs> yeah and actually someone out there i forget his name he made something called the phantom edit which is a differently edited version of the phantom menace that it cut out a bunch of stuff it just rearranged some things and that is cited as kind of a better version with of the same material. It kind of boils down to editing. And case in point, a key difference between the prequels and the old ones is none other than Marsha Lucas, George Lucas's ex-wife, who was an editor on the original Star Wars movies and even won an Oscar for her editing in, on A New Hope. And not just that, but she also was instrumental in shaping the overall creative direction of the originals. She would critique things at every step of the way, and she would reel in George's ego at times, and Mark Hamill credits her as being the warmth and heart of those movies. The problem is that they divorced in 1983. So uh, certainly he didn't bring his ex-wife to work on the newer movies, so George, with all the credit and prestige of the old movies, was left to his own devices to go full George Lucas on the prequels, much to our dismay. With a basically unlimited budget. Just... Yeah. <laughs> uh, <do> everything. <laughs> uh, they went from being really uh, tight with the purse strings to giving him way too much money to do whatever he wanted. Yeah, exactly. I think this movie, specifically Phantom Menace, I think would work better as a movie if you completely remove Anakin from the movie. Like, <laughs> it seems like, I think I think that this happens a lot. I have this issue with a lot of the movies made after the original trilogy, but it seems like they're different movies shoved into one movie. So yeah. one movie is a political drama about space trade 
and one is about a boy learning that he is a Jedi. Those are yeah. two different movies, and you can make both of those movies interesting. It's just hard to make those movies work simultaneously. I agree with that because it's what you get with that when you combine those two things is a movie that is at times too childish for some people and at other times too adult for other people. Exactly. It doesn't work for either audience. <laughs> yeah. Uh. And certainly, you know, the edit- <laughs> the editing didn't help because I-, I think the thing that Marsha Lucas tried to do and accomplished really well in the old ones was that she helped to create an emotional connecting point through all the movies. She really kind of brought the emotion with it because, you know, George Lucas is notoriously bad at writing romantic scenes. And dialogue. We know this. And dialogue, <laughs> which is the next thing that is rough about this these prequels in addition to the pacing being off the dialogue is at times wooden and at other times melodramatic with lines such as i don't like sand it's coarse and rough and irritating and it gets everywhere as like an attempt at flirting like that is (laughs) how george lucas writes romantic dialogue it makes no sense and and then he says melodramatic things like um oh what's what's the line I, i didn't write this one down but uh i am haunted by the kiss you should have never given me it is wild it's just bad dialogue all around this is this is a trademark of his even with the original trilogy apparently the actors when they were reading their lines were like people don't talk like this (laughs) harrison ford i guess like is rumored to have said you can write this on paper but when you say it out loud it's crazy (laughs) Uh. well so a thing with both of the movies that the actors would often rewrite their own romantic dialogue. So specifically Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford reworked a lot of that stuff. And Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen did too, but Hayden Christensen was a bit less experienced, I guess. And I'm gonna get I'm gonna get more into him later, but I think it just didn't work quite as well because I, I I'm gonna argue that it's the the lack of Marsha Lucas. Yes. I, I will say that that is it. I'm on board with this theory because I think there's an obvious switch and I think she's the big switch. The editing and the dialogue just get worse in these. So, oh, Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Marsha, Marsha. It also may explain why Anakin is so unlikable because, you know, it's it's supposed to be like the fall from grace of a good person and a good Jedi. Instead, it's this bratty, arrogant, you know, too big for his britches guy who is just aggressively flirting with Padme to the point of like, she literally says at one point that you make me uncomfortable. <laughs> oh God. Again, here we go with this freaking uh, guy who wants to be with a girl and persuades her into being with him. That's uh no yeah. thanks. I don't know why he thinks that works. Is that how he's gotten most of his romantic interest in his own life? Just by, you know, annoying them into agreeing to date him. I don't know. George Lucas, if you're listening, <laughs> Uh, Marsha Lucas, I'm much more in a hurry to hear from you. If you could tell us if that's how your dating life began. Is she still living? I honestly don't know. I can't remember. Would be I think she had if she's deceased and I was just like, please email us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to check real quick. Uh, oh, yeah, she's alive. She's alive okay. and well. Marsha Lucas, well. please email the podcast and let us know if 
George berated you into a relationship and that's why it ended. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we want to know. And just one more dialogue point that I want to point out is at the end after he becomes Darth Vader and is alerted that Padme is dead and he goes, he throws back his arms and goes, no! I literally was like rolling my eyes before he even said it. I was like, oh, this scene? (laughs) Yeah, like, oh, there's so many better ways that could have, like, he should have done, you know, I will say that the newer ones do better with that kind of anger where they have Kylo Ren just like throwing things around when he's angry. Like that's much more believable for someone with that kind of evil, toxic energy than just being like, no, that's <laughs> why. Um, but Lucas says that most people who criticize the dialogue don't understand the franchise. He says they're supposed to be from a more quote unquote romantic period of movies so to him the melodrama was ideal but it made the actors look like bad actors and what happened was it caused the very rabid Star Wars fans to come for some of the actors and criticize them for their acting instead of blaming it on Lucas himself because to them because nobody editors are the unsung heroes of all cinema but because people don't know very much about the work editors do they saw the main difference between these two movie series as the actors being bad because George Lucas was on both of them, so they wouldn't think to blame it on him. But no, they what they did was they came for the actors. And so most notably, the actors that got a lot of shit were Hayden Christensen, who plays grown-up Anakin, Ahmed Best, who played Jar Jar Binks, which I'll get more into that in a moment, and even Jake Lloyd, the child actor who played young Anakin, who was bullied at school and got so much shit after his role that he retired from acting. I was going to say, he has literally not been in anything since then. Yeah. That's so unfortunate that all that rage was focused where it did not belong. And uh, George Lucas saying that people who criticize the dialogue don't understand the franchise. George Lucas, you don't understand the people who watch the franchise. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he understands the franchise. (laughs) Yeah, it's like maybe it makes sense to you. And I've read a lot that like Dr. Zhivago was a huge influence for this movie. And it's like, well, movies like Dr. Zhivago weren't being made in the 90s. Because the audience did not want that sort of movie anymore. Right. It didn't make sense for the audience anymore. It wasn't what they wanted to see. So you giving people a bowl full of something they don't want isn't going to make them happy. Right. And, you know, I think people were more okay with that in movies back in the day. Partially because at that point the main precedent for movies was theater and theater you can get away with that a little bit more because you know you're acting a bit bigger whereas nowadays we have movies as a precedent and now people want things that feel a bit more real right and the dialogue in the old trilogy and even the the newer trilogy the the sequel trilogy the dialogue did feel more natural and more uh bantery and not you know like it was written by a child i think you know Audiences want realism in human emotions. They want fantasy. They want space. They want the adventure. But they want human emotions and human relationships that feel relevant to their own lives. Like something that you can recognize. So melodramatic royal romance doesn't translate as well as you might hope it does. 
George. Especially with the sci-fi aesthetic that is a little rough around the edges <laughs> because of the special effects of the time period. Uh. Uh. <laughs> and, you know, as far as why the other actors in the movie didn't get as much hate, I, I have heard before that the actors that tended to do better with the dialogue they were given in, in the series were, for one thing, actors with Shakespearean training because they were used to delivering lines that don't sound anything like the way people talk today. Uh, And also just more experienced actors in general, like Samuel L. Jackson, he doesn't have Shakespearean training per se, but he does, I would say he's one of the better actors in this movie with considering the dialogue. Right. And I think it's because he's a, a good actor with a lot of experience at that point. Yeah. And I think he probably brought his own personality into the dialogue which would be harder to do if you were a less experienced actor yeah and you know i think ewan mcgregor had shakespearean training and ian mcdermott i could be wrong about those but i think they are i i I don't know why i assume most british actors have that kind of training but um a lot of them do so uh and also the thing with ewan mcgregor is that he had his predecessor, the man who played the old uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, whose name I do not recall at this exact moment. Um, he's a very famous actor. I just uh, can't remember it. He had him. He was basically doing an impression of him. And so he had more to go off of, in addition to also just being more experienced than, say, Hayden Christensen. Right. And Natalie Portman got less shit because she was sexualized as a child because of this role. Um yeah. Uh, she recently did an interview where she talked about how uncomfortable it was for her growing up to be sexualized and that she really based her personality on trying to make people less attracted to her that she thought that she needed to be smart be respectable be a certain type of person so that she wouldn't just be sexualized and that it actually changed her as a person because she got so much creepy comments after this franchise yeah oh again that is uh you know the the fan base and also just society that's that's bigger than just the star wars fan base but uh also part of it 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 is both of those things and that that is the trouble and you see it you see it again and again, anytime there is a very famous young actress, you see it a lot with Millie Bobby Brown. I was going to say you see it with Millie Bobby Brown and also with Finn Wolfhard. I think I read some of the grossest things I've ever read are about him from women. So uh, I don't want to give women a pass. They're also gross. Yeah, just people not remembering that these are children and you know, it, there's no reason to sexualize a child. And part of that does come down to not in the case of Star Wars, because I don't, she wasn't super, super sexualized in the movie itself. I think uh, at least, at least not in the first movie. She was very, um, not even really romanticized and she was pretty conservatively dressed. I think that was mostly the the viewers who kind of did the work there to sexualize her. Right. But in a lot of cases, you know, there's a lot of media that, that sexualizes young children you know, I think the move there is to cast 20-somethings as teenagers. Right. Like we talked about with um, Riverdale, like, it's uncomfortable to think that they're supposed to be 16, but it yeah. makes it better knowing they're not actually 16. Yeah. And I've also read things that say, you know, it's maybe bad to make media for teenagers where teenagers are played by fully grown adults because then it gives them a weird perception about how they're supposed to look as teenagers, but also... 
the alternative is uh, sexualizing young actors and putting them in that situation. So it's like, there's a lot of, it's just, it's a hard time. (laughs) I don't know the exact answer on that, but at the very least, uh, protecting young actors from gross people, gross adults. At the the very least, don't be gross. Even if a film sexualizes in some way a child, uh, don't participate in that. Uh, Don't further it. And especially if they're not being sexualized at all, don't take it upon yourself to sexualize them. That's gross it's disgusting it's disgusting it's you know i do think there is a word for this and it's pedophilia it's pedophilia and that's um it's it shouldn't still be a problem it really shouldn't but here we are in 2021 dealing with pedophiles still it is 2021 you're right (laughs) my bad um i don't know where i (laughs) So the next thing I want to talk about is Hayden Christensen himself, and I want to offer a bit of a defense for him. Uh, He's probably the most inexperienced actor of all the adult cast, and while that was not the only reason he was so bad, it certainly didn't help. Because the real reason his acting was bad was because A, the horrible dialogue he was given, courtesy of George Lucas, and B, the constant bad directing he was getting, again, from George Lucas, which was mainly to play everything as very hammy and melodramatic so like constant bad advice coming his way right a lot of whisper acting that you don't need and and you know you're gonna play a character however you're directed by the director to play a character or they'll fire you and find someone else so right or at least that's the, you know, the probably the fear he had. Because a lot of the other actors did, at times when they could, didn't take his advice. They just did their did it their own way. Um, but, you know, they still had the dialogue they were given. So, you know, they could only do so much. But, and of course, like you said, they couldn't push back too much because it's not their movie. Especially for him as a, like, relative unknown young actor in a huge franchise. I mean, right. you want to go with the flow as much as possible in a scenario like that. I mean, I would imagine. Exactly. And so he probably took a lot of that advice very much at face value. And so I would argue that's less his fault and more George Lucas. <laughs> it's it's always him. I'm very pro Hayden Christensen. I always thought he got a really bad rap. Yeah, like I think because he's been in other things and hasn't been that bad. I think it, it was just the situation. Yeah. You know, George Lucas is such a huge fan of his, like, uh, mirrored series sort of uh, mentality of, like, their echoes of each other. But he made Luke such a likable character and made Anakin such an unlikable character. <laughs> and yeah, that's Marsha. That's why. <laughs> Marsha of it all. We miss Marsha. Or just someone, someone there to who would be comfortable enough telling George Lucas, like, no, that's stupid. Because it seems like he needs that sometimes. George Lucas is a very big picture guy. He has a lot of great big picture ideas, but then when it gets down to the specifics, you know, the directing, that's <laughs> where it's bad. He's just, he's not a fantastic director. You know, he's he's great at coming up with worlds, with the world building, with the creation of all this, but he's just not that good of a director. Hey, we all have strengths and weaknesses. Exactly. 
and uh, you know, I'm glad that he was okay enough to be very hands off with the franchise when it was taken over by Disney because then I, you know, I do have my issues with the new sequel, but at least they are better movies in technical terms. Uh, right. I was going to say, like, the pacing issues are a lot better in the most recent trilogy. The dialogue is uh, leaps and bounds better. Exactly. So being a bit hands off with this world he's created, I'm sure that was a hard decision. Or maybe it wasn't even his decision. I don't know. But it, you know, it, it was the right move. So the next thing then that I want to talk about is Jar Jar Binks. Obviously, Jar Jar is an incredibly bad and funny character, and he's the guy we all love to hate. Like, he's <laughs> a lot. I personally find him just hilarious and, you know, just fun to meme. To, to He's fun enough to turn into a meme that I don't mind him being there. But there's a lot of people that are angry at his existence in the movies. Um, I I didn't realize that how much... I liked the Jar Jar character until I watched the movie with the captioning on because the first several times I watched the movies, I had no idea what he was saying. Yeah. So like his storyline didn't make sense to me until I, until I literally turned the captioning on and could read what he was saying. Yeah, that is, (laughs) that's kind of the thing. He, he is a bit hard to understand. I don't know exactly what the intention of that accent was but uh there are some theories but the, and there's a lot to unpack with jar jar banks if you can imagine um <laughs> including his role in the special effects revolution of filmmaking but uh backing up the actor ahmed best was 24 years old when he was cast and at the time he was in stomp on broadway now i don't know if everyone listening remembers the cultural moment that was stomp but it was this Broadway show that was people dancing and playing percussion on trash cans and there were was physical comedy involved. Do you remember Stomp? I definitely remember Stomp. You were alive in the 90s. I was alive in the 90s and I thought Stomp was fascinating. Uh, I, fun. I don't know how this ended up happening, but I know I've told you before that the way I saw Cats as a child was someone in my class had gone to Broadway and brought a VHS of cats back with them and so we would watch it on like rainy days during recess that's also how i experienced stomp is someone brought a vhs from the broadway show of stomp huh so yeah that's a uh, that's how i was exposed to broadway as a child <laughs> rainy recesses that's pretty much what it is for the 90s and the early 2000s is stomp lion cats. king the lion, lion king, king cats and stomp that's it that's, that's a, all you need the trinity of 90s and early aughts broadway um but <laughs> the, and rent i guess i guess um but you can't play rent during recess though too heavy <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's high school but yeah so there was a lot of physical comedy involved and a casting director for star wars was in the audience a night where he was performing in stomp and saw him and saw that he was a very talented physical actor and they called him in to do an audition for Jar Jar who's supposed to be kind of a comedic character a comedic motion capture character so it really relied on his body and his movements well for one thing he was the first ever motion capture character and so not only was 
he relying on his body and movements in general because of that because they always do it was also the creation of that for a major motion picture and so they were writing the code for it as he went so it was just very much dependent on him being a good physical actor but the thing is when when the phantom menace was released uh, of course all the adult fans hated jar jar and of course the adult fans are the most vocal ones and i'm t- <laughs> They had more yeah. of a platform. <laughs> right. Like, he probably wasn't hearing much that like some fourth grader in Wisconsin liked his performance as Jar Jar. Because, you know, a, a kid isn't even going to think like that there's an actor behind that. Whereas the adults would know like, ah, this is the guy who plays Jar Jar. And then on top of that, there was a lot of cri- criticism that Jar Jar was a racist stereotype of a Jamaican person with a broken accent and things on his head that vaguely resembled dreads. And today, even today, this is kind of a controversial take like some people maintain that this that he was in fact a racist caricature and some people maintain that that is a stupid accusation and i don't know that i am the person to determine whether that is uh true or not i will say that i would be a lot more forgiving if there weren't more examples of racial stereotypes being used to craft aliens in these prequels right if this wasn't such a repeat offense then uh, I may say that, you know, this is reaching. But given the rest of the series, it makes it seem a lot worse, even if that wasn't the intention. Right. Like the people, the the trade federation, the bad guys of the whole trade federation thing have these vaguely East Asian accents. And uh, the hut people, hutties speaking people who are, you know, the same species as Jabba the Hutt. And they're basically the people who do financial crimes um, in this universe have some inklings of Jewish caricatures, stereotypes. So you're right. It is kind of a repeat offense. And so it is worth noting from George Lucas's perspective, even if it was unintentional. Although at that point, you know, when you when you're in charge of a huge franchise, being unintentional doesn't go very far because someone along the way should have been like, hmm, does this sound kind of like an asian accent to you uh yeah um hmm this uh doesn't really check out here uh george we think you're maybe uh internalized a lot of racist ideas (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah and that that's on you know all the production staff being white probably um, which I don't know for a fact, I haven't looked into it, but that is often the case. There's not a lot of people who step up and be like, well, hey, this is, this is a bit racist. And even if there is maybe one person of color on staff, if they're outnumbered and they're the only non-white person, then saying, hey, this is racist is going to be a lot harder to do than if they are in a room full of diverse voices who might have their back on that thing. It's, It's not as easy. So, Case in point, there, it's it's at, at least worth discussing that this could be the case. But a lot of this was taken out on the actor instead of George Lucas. Why? Um, and- Why would you ever blame the actors for this? Right. I don't understand this line of thinking of the actor did this thing when they were clearly coached. He didn't come up with this accent on his own. Yeah, and so Ahmed Best took this really hard, understandably, because he himself is a black man of West Indian descent. Not Jamaican specifically, but West Indian descent. And he was being accused of being like this sellout Uncle Tom type character, on top of people saying that he was the worst part of an already disappointing movie. So he was just having a rough time when this movie came out. 
And it got so bad that Best was even suicidal at one point. Like, there is a video on YouTube from Soul Pancake when Best tells this whole story of his feelings on, you know, when the movie came out and how he felt about that. And it was it was very sad because he seems like he's a very talented guy and he seems like he put a lot of his soul into this character, even though it was I think the faults with this character come down to George Lucas. Right. <laughs> he did the best he could with the character. And phys- physically, he is such a good, like, physical performer. Uh like he really is giving his all to this motion capture process and i think he deserves credit for that obviously and just justice for him (laughs) yeah that's so sad people often forget that he was the first motion capture character in a major motion picture and at the time they were creating the character george lucas special effects company industrial lights and magic like i said they were writing the code for cgi as we know it today and Ahmed Best was part of that code. So every motion capture character that has been made since then, since Jar Jar Binks, so like Avatar, Lord of the Rings, Planet of the the new Planet of the Apes movies, the Polar Express even, and basically Andy Serkis's whole career depended on <laughs> Jar Jar Binks. Really, uh, like we we have Jar Jar walked so you could run. Yeah, there's actually a quote because Andy Serkis did this video with Wired a few years ago where he was talking about the history and evolution of motion picture technology and implying that his work in Lord of the Rings was the first for that and Best replied to that video on Twitter and being like hey guys I feel like I've kind of been forgotten here (laughs) and and he responded with this quote after he kind of got an outpouring of love and support from Star Wars fans he said, thanks for the love today, especially the Star Wars fans. Jar Jar is bigger than just me or my performance. As much as we actors are on the front line when it comes to the success or failure of characters we play, what's more important is the accomplishment of bringing the work to the screen. Jar Jar helped create the workflow, iteration process, and litmus test for all CGI characters to this day. On some days, the code is being written in real time as I was moving. To deny Jar Jar's place in film history is to deny hundreds of VFX technicians, animators, code writers, and producers their respect. People like John Knoll, Rob Coleman, and scores of others who I worked with for two years after principal photography was ended to bring these movies to you. There's a joke I like to use when talking about this stuff. Jar Jar walked so Gollum could run. Gollum ran so the Navi could fly. Thanks for lifting me up today. Aw. Yeah. That's a wonderful quote. And also, like, kudos to him for highlighting VFX workers who are eternally shit on by fans, even though they are doing the best work they can with what they have. Yeah. Like, they were building the technology we have today for movies that are much better to look at than that you know we wouldn't have all the stuff we have today if it wasn't for them right so when i shit on the visual effects of this trilogy i'm not saying that it's the fault of the vfx people i just want to blame george lucas for relying too heavily on computers (laughs) yeah (laughs) yes it's it all comes back to george but Anyway, yeah, Ahmad Best seems like a really good guy, and I've been a fan of his since I heard him interviewed on a podcast called Newcomers, which I got you you to listen to. It's a great podcast. Yeah. His interview on there is just a delight, and he seems to have really, you know, bounced back from all this, which is very good. And the very last thing I want to point out about Jar Jar Binks <laughs> is that there was a popular, slightly jokey fan theory called Darth Jar Jar 
that suggested Jar Jar was actually a very powerful Sith Lord. Yeah, I love it too. <laughs> who's just pretending to be a klutzy clownish character to throw people off. And Ahmed Best actually has expressed support for this theory in the past and even implied that Darth Jar Jar was actually in the plans initially before all the horrible backlash made George Lucas kind of cut back the character altogether. I subscribe to this theory wholeheartedly. Me too. I think it's perfect. Uh, I think it makes it makes the Jar Jar character more interesting. It makes the plot of the movie a little more interesting. And I always love characters who are pretending to be hapless while secretly plotting. We all know how I feel about Columbo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the secret genius is one of my favorite tropes. So I really love the idea that Jar Jar is a Sith Lord the entire time. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I maintain that this is the case so another kind of controversial aspect of the prequels is the midi-chlorians it's introduced in the phantom menace because lucas didn't really have time to cover it in the originals but apparently this was kind of always the case and according to wikipedia midi-chlorians are microscopic intelligent life forms that originate in the foundation of life at the center of the galaxy uh, they live in the cells of living all living organisms and have a symbiotic relationship with their hosts and the Force speaks through the midichlorians, meaning people with high midichlorian count in their blood are highly Force-sensitive. So they aren't the source of the Force, but the larger cosmic Force communicates through them. And this is a major shift from the originals, because they treated the Force like this mysterious, almost spiritual, magical thing. And to some degree, it still is in the prequels, but it now has a distinctive scientific component. And people in the original trilogies literally treat the existence of the Force like it's mystical and not based in any sort of science or fact. Yeah. Non-believers, I should say. Right. And so, like, you know, so whereas this implies that you either do or don't have the Force in you, or, you know, a certain amount of it, the originals, it was sort of implied that Luke could become stronger in the Force by just believing in it more. And so these two ways of looking at it, they can work together because on the one hand, at the end of the third or episode three, Anakin kind of destroys all the Jedi text and stuff. And so in theory, it's just possible that nobody knew about the midichlorians in the originals, but also it's kind of just a bit of a bummer because it's like, well, at first you'd think like, well, anyone can be force sensitive or become force sensitive. But with this, it's like a distinctive you either do or don't. Right. You can't grow the force. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know. It's it's weird, but it was a big shift in the lore that just shook people. The adult fans. The adult fans. Yes. The Those of us young fans were like, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> or at least this young fan was. I was like, I don't understand any of this midichlorian stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, don't think it, I think it kind of went over uh, kids' heads. Or they just accepted it as like part of the, the thing. Whereas, you know, people who grew up with the originals kind of, again, formed this, their own ideas in their head about things and, you know, just ran with it. And then this came in and just tromped all over that. Right, because in the original trilogy, it's almost like you can meditate yourself into being force sensitive. But if it's in your blood, that's a bit harder to do. Yeah, they really just defined something that was mystical and mysterious and they didn't really need to. But, you know, it's there now. <laughs> 
Here's my movie pitch for this episode. Mm -hmm. In my new version, in my trilogy, which Disney's going to allow me to make, Mm -hmm. uh, you can suck midichlorians out of people's bodies. So people who are force sensitive are being hunted and harvested so that the wealthy can inject themselves with midichlorians. I think that's great because that is actually a thing according to wikipedia that does happen it is something that can happen it's not something that has been a narrative thing in any of the big ones but it is a thing apparently that can happen that there is evidence of this that you could suck the midichlorians out of one person and put them into another person i think that's like a really intrigue that's probably the most intriguing part of the midichlorian lore yeah is that transfer yes and i would also like them to explore the possibility that in addition to transferring it like you would also need the spiritual component and so if you weren't kind of in balance with the force that you would still not be able to use them or it would just be chaotic and just destructive we're gonna write the best trilogy yet with this yeah because we'll have like rich people like having the force put into them and then just having no idea either how to harness it or just having it not work at all because they can't lean into it spiritually so then it would just be chaotic i'm in yeah i think that sounds great (laughs) call us up john favreau we'll uh yeah oh we'll do it we'll do a second series for you yep we we got plans (laughs) so another and this is i am kind of going all over the place with this but that's because I didn't want to like unpack each individual movie. I wanted to un- unpack the elements of all the three movies that were weird and of note. And so the next thing I'm going to talk about is the age difference between Padme and Anakin. Oh, here we go. <laughs> this is it. This is the... <laughs> when they first meet, the ages of the characters are 10 and 14. But then, And they meet again 10 years later, and that's when they start the relationship. So in theory, that's not awful. That's like fairly reasonable. But the thing is... Natalie Portman is like 16 or 17 when this movie is being filmed maybe 15 like because I know that it was filmed like two years before it came out and she was born in 81 so let's see here 85 81 oh maybe she was 14 wait a minute I'm so bad at math much like George Lucas does dialogue Sarah and I do math so (laughs) (laughs) okay so she was 16 and and Jake Lloyd was eight and so that's the age difference. And he very much looks eight. Like he, yeah, he is a small child. And she looks sixteen. Like she, she right. after fourteen. But still, it's like this little kid and a teenager. So, and a teenager they don't really go too much into detail about why she's a teenage queen. And so it's very jarring then in the next movie to have them come back and yeah it's 10 years later so you're like is he 18 because if you don't explicitly know that he was 10 in the last one and that she was 14 so then there's 20 and 24 which is more reasonable than 18 and 26 the appearance of the age difference is a lot more stark and so it just feels very weird it feels very weird and especially in the movie in the phantom menace she sort of seems like she has a crush on him And not in a way that like a 14 year old interacts with someone who's 10 or more realistically eight because he doesn't look 10. He looks eight. Yeah. So it's just like their interaction together is odd. Like, I, I don't know. She sort of fosters him having a crush on her in a way that is like bizarre, weird to watch. I remember specifically coming home from this movie and saying to my mom, she's like a lot older than him though, right? Like, is this normal? 
Oh my god! Uh, because it is that noticeable that as a kid I was like, "Uh, wait a second here." Um, yeah, what the fuck? Um, uh, she's like a teenager and he's my age. I don't get it. I think it would have been so much better if they had aged him up to maybe like twelve or thirteen. Um, cause, yes. So maybe he was a couple years younger than her, but it was still they were in the same general age bracket instead of a little kid and a teenager. Right. Not to shit on Jake Lloyd. He did the best he could. Natalie Portman did the best she could. It all comes back to George Lucas. Right. And this very bizarre relationship that he created. Because it would have made just as much sense if he were 12. Maybe Maybe even more relatable for adults. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like how young Anakin is really takes adults out of it. Mm -hmm. So if he were a little bit older, then maybe it would be more likable for adults, but I don't know. At any rate, it would be less weird for him to strike up a relationship with Padme. Yeah, and the other weird part is that the difference between the the first movie and the second movie is 10 years, and so they don't replace the actor for Padme. They keep her the same, so she's, you know, older now, but then they do replace the actor for Anakin, and so... It seems like he aged 10 years, but she aged maybe three or four years. (laughs) Right. It's like, oh, you guys are almost the same age now. And it's like, okay, so is she a different type of alien that ages at a different rate? Uh, Yeah. This is like, we, we need to go into more detail about why she doesn't look any different and he looks like a different person because he is. He is literally a different person. <laughs> yeah, so I, I feel like that, making him that young in The Phantom Menace was a mistake. Um, it, They could have made him a bit older and then a bit more uh snarky and, and funny and just kind of a little scampy young kid. I don't think scampy is the right word there. That's a Italian. A dish. little shrimp scampy. <laughs> scampy. So then this brings me to my next point. That was a bad segue because these aren't that related. But what I'm going to talk about now is the use of Asian cultural elements in these movies. Here we go. Um, Yeah. So just like in the old ones, how we talked about they were basically using Taoism and Buddhism and kind of melding them together to make the Jedi practices and I would say also, especially in this one, because of like the Jedi Knight thing, that they're also using the idea of samurai quite a bit. Oh, yes. And so there's that. And then there's also, like we said, the bad guys of the Trade Federation having vaguely Asian accents. There's that. And then also, aesthetically, the most prominent thing is all of Padme's outfits in the Phantom Menace. And by Padme, I also mean her body double, which is Natalie Portman, (laughs) Uh, oddly enough. So Natalie Portman's, wait, Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley. Knightley. (laughs) But they do play each other. They play each other quite frequently. So it is really hard to keep straight who is who. Yeah. Because they do look real similar in this movie. They do. So much so that you don't even notice it at first and then and then rose byrne plays one of her handmaidens in a future movie so there's just like a lot of uh now famous actresses just sneakily in these movies which is fun to watch now and look back on but so we have kira knightley 
slash Natalie Portman in these outfits that are very heavily inspired by very um, regal East Asian outfits. Specifically, I think Mongolian and Chinese, maybe also elements of Japanese culture, and probably also elements of Korean culture. I think it's mostly East Asian in general. And so a lot of her hairstyles and the colors and the makeup, it's very reminiscent of that, which you know, there's a time and a place to be inspired by that. But I think what I think is interesting about this and maybe not good interesting is that I think these outfits were being chosen. It was because they're trying to make her look regal, but not in a way that a white Western audience would be used to. So not European royalty outfits that we're familiar with, more something that's a bit less familiar to us. And so they drew on real life elements, but ones that ones from asia to make it feel a bit more other and while uh completely failing to cast any asian actors in any prominent roles yeah exactly and then giving the the alien race that's evil asian accents it's just it's not a great look and you know the costumes are beautiful but they they're not really giving credit where credit's due and also, again, not casting Asian people. And so, and I realized the issues of if they were to cast Padme as an Asian person, since she is supposed to be Luke and Leia's mother, and they are very much uh, white people. So I, I, I realized the issues with that. But if you're going to borrow elements of other cultures, and then not actually cast people of those cultures in your roles, that's the, there's an issue there that uh, should have been dealt with. And it it almost seems worse that instead of being picked from one country specifically, it's like this mismatch of all different Asian cultures. Yeah, exactly. So instead of crediting, you know, one nation, he just is like, mm, Asian. Uh, yeah. It reminds me of uh, Jeremy Jams from Parks and Rec. <laughs> 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 like, he's just like, oh, it's Asian. <laughs> basically uh, that yeah it, and you know this one i there might have been people in like the costuming department that had more of a role in this than george lucas himself but and where they were drawn I, I i don't really know the creative process of how they came up with these outfits but more thought maybe should have been put into borrowing from real earth cultures or if you're not going to put extra thought into it at least like cite your sources right at least give credit to what you're stealing and draw like shine a light on the cultures that you're borrowing from yes i i agree it could have been like a educational moment for american society for white american society uh because a lot of american society would be familiar with these things already at least vaguely and so yeah, that's just, that's one issue that, that comes up. I So now I've, I've spent a good while kind of shitting on the series with some, I would say some pretty valid things, but now I'm going to talk about the things that I think were done well in this series. So I know that we talked about how the focus on political stuff was too much, but I would say that Revenge of the Sith is the redemption for the focus on politics because like you were saying, how George Lucas is fascinated with how a democracy becomes a, a totalitarian or uh, imperialistic force. This movie explores that very well, I would say. Although I think 
Yes. The one flaw would be that, you know, I think that they didn't start... We, the character development with Anakin was interesting, but they didn't start with a nice enough Anakin to make it sympathetic. You were, But you did kind of see how, you know, when his mother died, he was so devastated about that and felt like he could have stopped it if he were just more powerful. And then when he gets a a little future flash that Padme is going to die in childbirth, he does everything in his power to stop that from happening. And then in doing so, makes it happen. And so that part's interesting. Although, you know, the part where she dies of a broken heart angers me, but that <laughs> oh, that's a weird yeah. element to throw in. But the part where you see kind of his descent into the dark side and his trust for Palpatine that comes back later, that, that is a call back to the original trilogy where he was being controlled by Palpatine. So more than even a Darth Vader origin story, this is a Palpatine origin story because someone who... Right. Manipulating Anakin is actually evil. Like, that makes complete sense. And the line, you know, I saw I saw this article, and I forget where, but it was saying, like, ten cheesiest lines from the Star Wars prequels, and one of them was when Palpatine says, I am the Senate. I love that line, though. I, okay, I was gonna say, I, I love that line, and one of my favorite lines from the whole Star Wars universe is said in this movie. Do you know which one I mean? Yeah. Is it said by Padme? Yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I don't know the exact quote, but uh, not with something, but with applause. Yeah, That's- this is how democracy dies yeah. uh, with thunderous applause or something like that. Yeah, it that uh, every time she says that, it chills yeah. me because I think that is like for real yeah because everyone's like Uh, all right let's give palpatine this executive power so he can just make some life saving decisions or whatever and then he runs with that power and and ends up creating the empire the galactic empire instead of what you had before and so it's really interesting like it is a really interesting way at looking about how governments turn into regimes yeah, I, I I really like that start that story arc so much. And I love the story arc of Anakin, but I think it was handled so poorly. Yeah. Because here's Anakin, a child ripped away from his mother, uh, living with a very strict Jedi trainer mm-hmm. who forces him to suppress his emotions, which uh the Jedi sort of Laud is this like perfect accomplishment if you can like repress your emotions, but I don't think that kids can do that. No, uh, <laughs> I don't think anyone can do that. I think that is a stupid yeah, thing to tell anyone to do. So I think that it would make perfect sense that if you were a child dealing with um abandonment and then loss and grief, and then someone comes to you and says, Hey, you know, this group is trying to make you hold in your emotions but your emotions are good and expressing them makes you powerful and you can do powerful things with your emotions that is like a cult leader who would absolutely get you to go to their side like it makes perfect sense to me and i just wish it was handled in a way that makes it more sympathetic toward anakin because i think there is so much that you can look at anakin and say i understand why he would go to the dark side but when you make him do things like murder a bunch of fucking kids 
that that doesn't that doesn't like make you empathize with this character. I feel like that's mm-hmm. so. If he had just done lesser crimes, but right. you know, well, it, like out of manipulation, like that. Even it was bad, but also at that point he was being so heavily heavily manipulated by Palpatine. The thing I find more of an issue with is in Attack of the Clones, where when his mom dies, he slaughters like that whole village of people, even the women. The children. children. <laughs> the children. And that line. And then, and then Padme's just like, like, oh, we all get angry. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> like, it's a poor baby. Had to kill all the women. <laughs> so I yeah. think that made uh, him a lot less sympathetic because it's like. Yes. And her acceptance of that made her less sympathetic also. Yeah. That seems wild. And he was like, they're animals. I'm like, okay, this is a sentient alien group of people so like you know if you're gonna make the aliens like humans you know you can't do that uh tuscan raiders are problematic in their own right in that they are referred to as sand people so heavily oh yeah Uh, and they are so frequently the villains and they do a lot of killings and taking of slaves and they are like a a people who survive in the desert Mm. um and sort of live off the land, and they make them like these heinous villains, which I, I think is its own problematic thing that I forgot to mention yesterday. But it all comes yeah, back. Yeah, it all. Well, yeah. Or in the last episode, <laughs> I forgot to mention that. Yeah. Well, I mean that. I I think you're right. I think that's viewing that kind of character as a villain is a very um, Western kind of colonialist approach to it. I think. I think uh, maybe that's reading too much into it, but. Well, I think. I'll get into this when we talk about the outside lore, but I think that especially in The Mandalorian, spoiler for upcoming episodes, that the Sand People are framed as like a a parallel to Native Americans, Mm. which in that context, I sort of like it. But when you've portrayed them as savages through the whole series to then say like, oh, they're this really ingenious people living in the desert and they're, like, good all of a sudden. It's just, like, uh, there's a lot of problematic things attached to Tusken Raiders and, uh... Yeah, yeah. no, I get that. Like, they're trying to undo what they did but in in doing, by further digging into the fact that they're being compared to Native Americans, that also has some issues. Right. There's just a lot of there's just a lot of issues with Tuscan Raiders slash sand people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's for sure. <laughs> uh, it just it just feels like that 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 thread on Twitter or that that trend on Twitter where people are like, "What's something that isn't racist but feels racist?" I would say it's that. Except in this case, it maybe actually is racist, but like before <laughs> they were more explicitly compared to Native Americans. It's like, is this? Are they are they doing this? Are they making this? assumption right right because i i don't know it's it's, it's just like a, a lot of i just think the the term sand people is uh rough as hell and it gives me weird uh, vibes yeah because because that could be a derogatory term for a lot of cultures on earth mm-hmm. so yeah. it's just it's just like um when you feel like a racist could use the same term for a human group of people on the planet earth take it out yeah leave it it's it doesn't belong in then it's not really escapism for everyone you know that that's gonna 
if you're if someone can watch it and be like, ooh, someone called me that, then it's not true like sci-fi escapism. Yeah, there's there's a, a lot of those little issues in sci-fi movies. Um, but I, I like how I, we were like, oh, we're gonna talk about the good things, and then we're back on this because. <laughs> yeah here we are again yeah but that, was, <laughs> but that was a bad i would say like this is another example of how george lucas is a better big picture guy than a little details guy because i think he had the right idea of anakin's descent into the dark side but it wasn't executed very well and so i think that's how we got what we got but i will say that up until the part where he goes no uh the scene where he's becoming darth vader is really cool and especially with music yes like the sound i read uh, i read this one article that that was saying that was arguing the sound design is the true genius of this series this trilogy because both with the score and then also with like the score is the main thing that makes this trilogy feel like like star wars in addition to like the lightsabers and certain aesthetic cues but th- that's the main thing that makes it feel still within that universe. And then also, they they just had a lot of cool noises in it. <laughs> like, I don't know how else to describe it. Like, they just, the sound design was good. And so the part where he's becoming Darth Vader, and I mean, there's a lot of cool noises in that too, but I mostly mean where they start playing the Darth Vader march. And you can even hear little bits and pieces of that score throughout the last movie as he's kind of going further into the dark side like it's him becoming darth vader and they're using musical cues to do that and that is very cool that is a very cool touch to see the peak to see the darth vader peeking Mm -hmm. through yeah that's something i very much appreciate another unsung hero of filmmaking along with editors which is is part of editing i would imagine Uh, i don't know i'm I'm not going to claim to know that much about filmmaking but that is within the same category of post-production. I know that there's an Oscar for sound editing every year, and I actually do pay a lot of attention to this because I really enjoy when movies sound beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when you have just a really good score, when everything sounds really uh, clear and powerful, that that just takes a movie from like zero to 60. Yes, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We watched that movie together and- Oh boy, that oh. movie is ASMR from start to finish. It is just the sounds. Yes. Wow. The, okay, that movie, I could do, we could do a whole <laughs> podcast episode on how much I love the the visuals and the sound editing from that movie it because movie. it's just chef's kiss. I love that whole movie as a whole. I love the plot. I love the actors. I love the sets. I love all of it. Mm-hmm. Five stars. Yeah. If I could give it more than five stars, I would give it more than five stars. Six out of five. Uh, off the charts. Off the charts for me, honestly. It really, like, was the highlight of that early part of quarantine <laughs> for me. I thought about it for yeah. months. <laughs> yeah, that's the... Cause we, we did have some good movies this year, or in the end of 2019. Like, the, this was a good Oscar season. And then um, and then movie the movie industry has kind of... At least the movie theater industry has kind of come to a grinding halt, but... I'm, oh wait, did I just reference this year as in 2020? It all runs together. Yeah, well, oh well. Um, but but yeah. So I think that there are good things about this series, and I think it also did set up the 
film industry for the 21st century. Like this was really, it really just brought us right into it with the types of effects that were used that were later improved upon because right after this, we get Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings uses that same stuff, but they also incorporate practical effects to the point where, including most of all, probably forced perspective in such a way that improves upon what you had with Jar Jar Binks and all that stuff. So all the really amazing movies with effects that you get after this are kind of because of this. And it, it, it doesn't get enough attention for that, but it is, in a lot of other ways, not the most fantastic movie series. So it, it did both. Right. Again, I think I would like these movies more if there was a trilogy about Anakin's transformation into Darth Vader and then maybe just one movie that was about uh emperor palpatine's rise yeah if you could just split them up well and also so apparently disney plus with the obi-wan kenobi series that's coming eventually hayden christensen there's rumors i don't know if they're official if there's official word yet but there's rumors at least that he is supposed to reprise his role as anakin skywalker so i don't know if the obi-wan series is going to take place pre-darth vader or after or how that's gonna work but Hayden Christensen might be coming back, which is good because that makes me think that maybe he has, he's being welcomed back into the Star Wars universe and is kind of out of exile. Yes. And I'm very glad that they're bringing you and McGregor back because I think he is maybe one of the brightest spots in this whole trilogy. Yeah. Is he is, he is just very, very good as young Obi-Wan. And I, I don't think that Obi-Wan Kenobi is a perfect character. And I don't think that that Ewan McGregor makes him one, yeah. if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, he really like, embraces the flaws. Yeah, so I'm excited for that one. I'm excited for all the stuff that's happening on Disney+, Plus. Yeah, which we'll get into uh, two episodes from now, but I hope Hayden Christensen gets his redemption. Yeah, he, I think he deserves it. He's He got a lot of shit for um, things that really weren't his fault. I hope he doesn't have a rat tail if he comes back to the yeah, Obi-Wan that's, series. Uh, what is with, like, they really, because... Elon McGregor has a rat tail in the first one until he gets the master, and then he has like the long haircut, almost a mullet. And so is that what it is where like Jedi's in training have the rat tail and then once you become a Jedi master, you have long hair and then Elon McGregor was allowed to cut his hair. I would say the best hair of the whole trilogy was in the third one. Because Hayden Christensen yes. looked great with long hair. And Ewan McGregor... I was going to say, I love his long, like, Darth Vader locks. Yeah, that, that's pretty good. Until it all got burned off when he uh, burned up in a volcano. <laughs> uh- <laughs> we haven't even talked about oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a pretty uh, intense burning alive scene. Yeah. Yes, he... And that's why... And it's interesting that that is the... Well, okay, because I guess they had to do that somehow because Darth Vader in the original series when he took off his mask was you know very scarred he'd clearly been through something so they had to put him through something (laughs) and it was that and it it was very interesting like i do love the fight even though there's some cheesy lines in it i do love the fight scene the big end battle between obi-wan and hayden christian anakin (laughs) um (laughs) anakin yeah um because it's like a it's very I would say that that's the best special effects in the whole trilogy with the the lava and stuff. Like that was actually pretty good. It's a really good scene just 
for what it is. Right. It's you know how you can up the stakes in a fight scene? Make it happen in a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a weird choice for it, but like I guess if if one of the people has to come out of it just burnt to a crisp, that's one way to do it. And he also like <laughs> loses pretty much all his limbs. Uh so uh, that is kind of the explanation for why he has to wear the Darth Vader suit because he needs it to breathe and he needs it to, to have prosthetic limbs. And so we, which is interesting that he is very much able to immediately get up once he's put in that suit and just walk around because from my understanding of prosthetic limbs, it does, there's a bit of a learning curve there to get used to them. But I, I guess this is, you know, different time, different galaxy, different, technology for prosthetics i don't know it's all the future past so uh <laughs> but i think that's about all i have for the series um it's just it really is re-solidified for the audience that this is in fact a kid series um but also with some adult notes in it uh, i don't know it's just it's yeah. something all right it is it is a thing it's uh it really is three movies it's three movies for sure and it almost killed star wars but star wars was more resilient so you know a lot of that had to do with disney buying it yes um also this trilogy gave us my least favorite character in all of star wars which is darth maul (laughs) oh Um, i didn't even touch on him there's so much i don't hate I don't hate Darth Maul because of the character. I hate Darth Maul because every kid in grade school that was like a bully dressed up as Darth Maul for oh, Halloween. Yeah. No, that that's very true. Um, I do remember one kid when I was little dressing up as Jar Jar Binks for Halloween. That kid was probably wholesome <laughs> instead of a horrible bully. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. There were a lot of... I do remember a lot of boys being Darth Maul for Halloween because he is a cool-looking character, at the very least, despite him mainly serving the purpose of killing off... Que- oh, I can't say this character. Qui-Gon. Qui-Gon. Qui-Gon Jinn. Qui-Gon Jinn. Um, yeah, I really brushed over that, dude, but the... <laughs> He isn't important other than the fact that he murders an important character. Yeah, exactly. And then Qui-Gon was Anakin's father figure, and then once he got killed off, he didn't really have a father figure, and then Obi-Wan was more of his brother, all that stuff. Like, there is kind of a, like, again, big picture. Like, there was a familial theme, just like in the old ones. It just wasn't executed very well. You didn't even see, like, a lot of the bonding between... Uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin like we just skipped right to where they were bickering and arguing and and, like not seeing eye to eye on things like if you want us to believe that they have like a a brotherly relationship you have to show that to us you can't just say like oh you're like my brother right and I also think that Qui-Gon Jinn is not a great father figure character yeah like I think he's not like he's so much about like his mission that he is like you know so focused on the Jedi mission that he can't be like a loving father figure to Anakin, which I would have liked to see that more. He's a bit of a Dumbledore character. Yes, he's very much a Dumbledore for sure. Uh, the sort of I'm your mentor, but I kind of don't care about you except for the fact you're yeah, a means exactly. to an end. <laughs> and he you know took him away from his mother uh, without much regard for how much that would fuck him up, and then promptly died, which, you know, I guess not his fault, but that didn't really leave Anakin with a lot of 
parental figures and then he had to stay away from his mother and then once his mother died felt guilty about not going back for her so it left Anakin with a lot of trauma uh for no reason like why couldn't they take his mom away too like I don't really get that but um I guess for the story you know can't have his mom there a helicopter because Jedi have to suppress their love for people because they can't be too attached to other people, which is um, a recipe to have your child slash uh, young apprentice be taken over by a more appealing parental figure who offers them the sort of love and attention yeah. that they didn't get. Yes. And, oh, it just leads to trauma and Anakin needed therapy and uh, they all needed some therapy, clearly, yeah. but I don't know if therapy exists in the Star Wars universe. But anyway, that's kind of, I guess, everything wrong and a few things right about the prequel trilogy. Uh, Thanks for listening. (laughs) If you vehemently disagree with us on anything, please email us. We'd love to talk it over with you. Yes, please fight with us. Like, uh, if you feel completely differently, we love to hear these other opinions. So shoot them at us. Uh, We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We have an email. A lot of you are our personal friends, so go ahead yeah. and text us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're already here. Uh, so thanks for listening. And, uh, good riddance, everyone. Good riddance.